It's the Michael Bourne identity. It's episode 11 in which I continue to have to call in a number of favors uh, and have conversations that I then record with with my friends. Uh, and today, uh, I feel like I feel like we're on a really good roll. What with with Joe Firstman last week, and then and then two of not only my favorite musicians, but two of my favorite people in the world. Uh, and this is a this is a, round, a special roundtable. There's three of us, and so we'll see how much we talk over each other and just how much laughing we we do to drown each other out. Uh, and so. Going clockwise in on my screen, we have the a member of the baseball project, the organist from Fenway Park, uh, hero of the pandemic. He is Josh Cantor. Josh, how you been? Uh, well, it's a funny question, but I guess all in all, I've been okay. You know, we've my wife and I have been uh, healthy, and that's uh, we're just letting that be, you know, enough to keep us going. I think okay at the end of December is is a is a massive win. Like that's if you're still yeah, okay, yeah. like that's the, then things are things are going pretty well. All right, we'll come we'll come back to that. Uh, uh, at the bottom of the screen, he is a member of Centromatic, South San Gabriel, Monsters of Folk. Uh, if you know anything about Texas and and if you follow alternative music in Texas or just music in Texas in general, you already know Will Johnson. Will, how are you? I'm pretty all right. Um, much like Josh said, it's kind of a strange question to answer at this point because I'm I've been doing the same thing for months, but at least I've been able to sustain doing the same thing for months and I'm maintaining some health and a little bit of sanity and family's healthy and moving along. So uh all told, no complaints. All right, so we're we're over nine months into this little shutdown uh pandemic. We actually, so we have this tradition, the three of us, that during South by Southwest, and, and I very much appreciate this tradition because it makes me sound super cool when someone asks what I'm, what I, you know, what I'm doing for the weekend. I'm like, oh, I'm heading down to Austin for brunch with a couple of buddies at, at South by. And that's how, I, that's my street cred when I just call it South by. Um, <laughs> we, we had it scheduled. Like we were going to, we, it was all, we had the the place, we had the time, we were getting ready to, to have brunch again. And, and like, 20 minutes after we, you know, nailed everything down, South by Southwest got shut down. Um, and we didn't get to have that brunch. So this is the brunch uh, for, for 2020. Uh, I guess at what point were, did you think, like, we're still going to be doing this in nine months? Like, is, did, was that ever a possibility? Well, in, I mean, it was that a possibility. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I remember early because it all, you know, everything sort of collapsed all at once in terms of like, well, South by and Major League Baseball and other sports and then concerts and just sort of, you know, all these things that are <laughs> parts of my world, like all came crashing down pretty much on the same day. And, you know, I do remember at that time, like, you know, I do remember talk, top experts saying, like, it's probably going to be a year before people start to get vaccinated. So in that sense, I I was, you know, preparing for the long haul uh, and, not, and, you know, working for a Major League Baseball team and not knowing, A, was there going to be a baseball season at all? If so, when was it going to start? And once it started, were they going to ask for my services, given the stripped down nature of the whole thing. I just kind of um, 
just set my expectations real low, you know, um, so that I didn't, uh, you know, just so that I could kind of manage and at least feel like some of the expectations were being met. Will, how about you? Uh, similar situation, really. Uh, these days for laughs, I like to revisit a file folder in my head that's titled Foolish Thoughts That I Had at the Beginning of the Pandemic. And I can specifically remember a few, like roughly March 12th, 15th or so, when everything really started to come down. I was like, well, okay, the April tour will be canceled, but surely I could go out and maybe get some dates in in August or so. Oh, well, and then, you know, April 1st comes around. It's like, well, August probably won't happen, but maybe I can keep the October tour on the books. And of course, you know, that by May 1st or so, I've started to really come around to the notion, like Josh said, it would at minimum be a year. And realistically, at that point, I started figuring it would be fall of 21 before any significant touring was able to happen again. And uh, you, so many thoughts go through your head when it is like, like Josh said, when it all kind of comes crashing down in a matter of days is that, you know, we are definitely not in charge of anything. Nature will have its say and uh, we have to yield to all of that and, and adjust. And so there was about six weeks of uh, inner panic just for financial purposes and, well-being and uh, quality of life. There was just a lot that went through my mind and I kind of went down a hole for a while. And then maybe early May, mid-May, I just started making paintings at a furious rate to try to kind of put all the eggs in another basket. And fortunately, I had a little bit of footing there with a painting audience or with the baseball painting audience uh, to go on but I really just heaved everything over to that side. And since that time I've made, I don't know, 110 paintings, just uh, really out of keeping my nose to the grindstone and keeping focused on something while we move through this thing. So uh, I've lost my calluses. I haven't been playing much music at all. Uh, I've played a few shows, but they're so spread apart that one will come up on the calendar and it's like, oh, you got 10 days to the next show. You need to relearn how to play music and you really <laughs> need to relearn how to play the guitar and deliver a, a set of songs without passing out. And so I'll hit a small training program for about 10 days and then get real ready for it. And then it all goes away again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, all right, you kind of focused on the painting side. Josh, you still like you were still at Fenway playing the organ this season, right? I did. I mean, it was a short season. They had 30 home games instead of the usual 81. They started in late July and I got word hmm, maybe three or four weeks prior that they wanted to have me come be part of it. Obviously there were all kinds of decisions being made about what to do and what not to do. And um, the, the phrase I kept hearing over and over all, everywhere about everything was like the situation is very fluid and that just seemed to be the the mantra coming out of major league baseball in fenway park um but then i think you know because they wanted it to they wanted the they weren't going to have fans in the stands but they wanted the broadcasts to have 
you know, to feel as close to normal as possible. So that meant including some sounds, it meant including the DJ and the public address announcer and the organ music. So, so those three roles, the three of us got um, invited to come be a part of a very stripped down um, crew that was present there working the games. And, you know, it was an incredibly surreal experience. I don't think, I certainly didn't get used to playing to an empty stadium over the course of 30 nights. I don't know if I ever would have, you know, like, I don't know, there's any number of nights where all of a sudden it feels like, oh yeah, that's normal. Um, so I was, I was grateful for the work and I, you know, enjoyed getting to see some baseball and I had to keep my distance from my colleagues, but we talked to each other on a headset. So at least I got to have a little bit of a social life, you know, just like chatting with coworkers, um, during lulls in the action uh you know it was very very strange like so many other things and of course the Red Sox got off to a poor start and so they and it was a short season so they were kind of uh you know they they were out of it quickly which um meant that there was I feel like in the second half of a two-month season the, you know, the energy was already sapped from it being an empty ballpark. And we're so used to that ballpark being full all the time. So between that energy sap and the lackluster start, um, you know, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a pep in your step kind of experience. Oh, oh yeah. No. And I mean, I, I did not, and, and I was talking about this the other day. Um, I didn't watch nearly as much baseball this year as I have in the last, I don't know, 30 years. Um, just because, you know, it, it, it's, there, there was sort of a, well, okay, it's nice that it's on, but does it really matter right now? And I didn't know how much of that was just pandemic fatigue uh, and then the state of society, but also the, you know, all of this happening in the off season from hell for, for the Astros and, and for an Astros fan. Um, did you notice, or, or I guess, how did your, so Josh, you were still at the stadium 30 nights a week. Yeah. Will, did you, did you notice that you're a huge Cardinals fan? Did you notice a drop off in your enthusiasm for baseball consumption this year? Without a doubt. I mean, uh, there are, were certain elements of just sustaining life in a palatable way, in a way that, uh, that, is still healthy and fruitful for Jesse's and my kids that it's already at the forefront. But when something like this starts up, I learned a lot about where baseball really lives in my periphery. And uh, it, it felt strange that they were going out there to play it when in the first place, but even once it cranked up again, uh, my attention was really diluted. just with the fact that uh, a whole new way of living had kind of been thrust upon us. And um, I, I accepted the notion that uh, it, it can wait a little while before I, I fully come back to it in the way that we have known it for the last 12 years of our uh, email list and the way that we have normally communicated about it. Uh, I can, I can rearrange things in my life to where I'm just not going to be as obsessive about it right now or any, any sports really for that matter. I'm happy if one of my team teams does well, but uh, there's something about it 
uh, at the risk of sounding pretty maudlin, there's something about it that is uh, not terribly exciting to me right now, just because I'm trying to figure out personally uh, how to reinvent my living. Yeah, and I think I was, I think it was a conversation with you guys or with someone in our, in our, uh, you know, group of oddball music baseball people who said, cited that, uh, you know, Sean Doolittle had made some comment that was like, be the reward for a high functioning society. And it just, it just hasn't felt like we've been a particularly high functioning society. So, mm. uh, so I, I understand where Will's coming from. I know that that's been like, uh, you know, been a hard thing for people to sort of get, you know, continue to give sports a prominent place in, in their day-to-day lives. There's something healing. There's something satisfying and healing about the sound of it. On I found that I listen whenever I did tune in. It was more on the radio than uh, any kind of video. And there was something satisfying just about the frequency of it being on, maybe in the art studio or in the house. But at the same time, it's it definitely made me realize what a luxury item baseball is, and. Uh, I'll be grateful for it when we can all kind of come back to it with full enthusiasm and force. But right now I just feel like we've been delivered a massive truckload of perspective. And with <laughs> that, with that, some of those uh, extracurricular things just have to take an even further back burner. Yeah. And the, the feedback that I was getting from friends and from fans, especially, you know, in Red Sox land, it's very similar to what you're saying, Will, that people said it was what they appreciated the most about it was that it, the presence of it was allowed for this kind of like meditative, these meditative moments. Um, But it was not about, it was more about that than it was about following the day-to-day fortunes. Um, Right. You know, and you, you mentioned James, the the off season from hell, the Red Sox kind of had their own off season from hell with uh, Alex Cora and then trading Mookie Betts uh, and a couple other oddball things that happened in there, the new GM um, who I think has been good, but, um, uh, but, you know, he, you know, he did not like, he didn't know what he was signing up for. You know, he didn't know that within weeks of arriving, he'd be trading the franchise and, and firing the manager and the you know the beloved manager and uh, and a pandemic to boot. <laughs> so is is everyone? I'm curious what about because this is the first time you've you've been on on the other podcast on Lima Time Time a couple of times, but this is the first time that we've done this since since it all sort of went down for the Astros. Is the feeling around is the feeling around Boston that I, I guess what's the what's the Red Sox fans take on Alex Cora the he was suspended because the the dirty cheating Astros like convinced tricked him into you know <laughs> and banging some trash cans or or is are like yeah he needed that one year suspension but you know let's let obviously obviously you you guys love him and and I I loved him when he was with the Astros but I, yeah so so what's the what's the Red Sox fan take on Alex Cora yeah and and there is a lot to love about him I, from what I'm seeing and hearing. The overwhelming majority of people are very happy that he's back, um, that they feel like he's still the right fit and they feel like, you know, he paid his price. And so he, 
you know, should not be further penalized. Um, probably fans in other cities, you know, uh, won't, you know, might feel a little more harshly towards him. Um, and, you know, at the time of his departure, it was, um, I think in general, people understood and accepted like that there was no way around that. Yeah. Um, but of course there was also speculation from day one of like, oh, they're, they'll bring him back, you know? And I don't, I don't think, I don't, I mean, I don't have access to any kind of inside information. I don't think those kind of kinds of conversations were happening in the front office at that time, but, um, uh, you know, there seemed to be acceptance that, that he had to, you know, pay a penalty. Um, and, you know, and then they were hopeful that he would come back and he has come back and the players seem very happy about it from what I can tell, um, you know, that they, they like his, his leadership and his style. Um, so, you know, will he be a villain in visiting ballparks next year? Possibly. I don't know. You don't think so? No, no, he won't. Cause he, he's not wearing an Astros Jersey. So it, it's like, you know, well, not, maybe not the same level of villain, but no, I don't think it'll even, I don't think it'll even register a blip because like okay. you, had, you had in spring training, you had dudes booing Michael Brantley uh, who wasn't even on the 2017 team, wasn't on the 2018 team, um, you know, and, and, and they're booing him because he's wearing the Astros jersey. Meanwhile, Jake Marisnik is playing for the Mets on the other side who was on the 2017 and 2018 and 2019 teams. And, and he's not hearing a, he's not hearing a word. So, yeah, so I, don't, I, I don't think Alex Cora has to worry about anything. They're, they're booing the laundry. Yeah, I exactly. Think that's right. I think people forget really quick. They remember the laundry, but they don't remember who was wearing the laundry unless they really, really want to carry that grudge. And I don't think a lot of people uh, maintain that energy over, over time. You know, I think you're right. And so Will, you're the Cardinals fan and the Astros and the Cardinals had a, had a long history. Uh, and, and I've said on here a whole bunch of times that, because someone asked if asked me if I thought the the hate for the Astros was going to go away, uh, and and I said it, it might diminish a little bit over time, but but no, it, there's always going to be some level there with anyone who pays attention to baseball, uh, and I use the Cardinals as an example because of the the weird little hacking thing that oh, your front office did. That if if you say the Cardinals now, I'm like, oh, change your passwords, <laughs> and and that's my like little throwaway joke about it. And it's been like seven or eight years and it's nothing on the level of, of what the Astros have been through. So what's your take on, on the Astros and, uh, and sort of what, what their lot in life is until we all, you know, perish and scale. Well, and- <laughs> it's something I've kind of been wanting to ask you about, like how your timeline is working out with, I mean, obviously I know that you're, uh, you're far from distancing from from your team but in my estimation it's probably going to take a full roster cycle of players to come and go before that really starts to feel in the distance is that correct or no I mean I'm trying to get it I sort of reversed the question I'm sorry but I guess the Astros thing is frequently on my mind because I know so many Astros fans here in Central Texas so I'm always kind of curious to pick their brain as to where they're at with their return of affection or how much 
it's waned in the last, you know, year. It's, it's Where are you now, say, versus last year? This time last year, it was just, and obviously, so one year ago, you know, right now, we knew what the Astros had done, but yeah. we're still, we're still waiting on, you know, the Manford investigation. And so yeah. there's like, I thought, I, I thought Hinch would get suspended for 81 games. Yeah. Uh, I thought, you know, the front office would get sanctioned. I wasn't super confident that I didn't think that, that Hinch would get fired. Uh, and I, I didn't think that, that Luno, the GM would get fired, but I was expecting some, you know, some massive penalty. And in the back of my head, I wonder if Manfred didn't go to the, the Astros owner, Jim Crane and say, you're going to fire these guys, or there's going to be a whole different set of, of punishments going to, that, that are going to get levied, you know, that, yeah. that either, either you get rid of these guys and, and this basically you do this and this is the punishment. If you don't do this, this is the punishment. And and the Astros went <clears throat> with the more palatable, uh, you know, decision, I guess. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, I, I, I'm actually curious myself because we just talked about like my enthusiasm for anything really, you know, over the course of 2020 was, was muted at, at best. And so, you know, once, you know, there's a full rollout of, of vaccines and, and things yeah. get quote unquote back to normal, I'm curious what my participation level will be because I, I just don't know yet. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm in the Astros camp or the Astros fan camp of being like, why did you dudes do this? It was so yeah. dumb. And like, how did you think you would continue to get away with it? You know, and, and I, I do think, and I might be, this is where I might be delusional. I think that 2017 team was good enough to, to, to win it, to win the world series without any of that crap. Um, yep. And so there's, there's just a sense of like, you're telling me that I've been an Astros fan my entire life. And I have waited for one good thing to happen in my 40 years and it happens. And then two years later, we find out that, you know, it's, it's tainted, you know, it, at best. And, and then I go back and I'm like, how did you lose the freaking world series with, with Verlander, Garrett Cole and Zach Grinky? And, and is that, is that just baseball karma? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what my, and obviously it's going to be just because I've sort of, sort of have this online persona which is no different from my actual persona. Like it's not, there's no act uh, involved, but I don't know. It, it, the, the Astros are always going to be a part of my life, but even I'm curious what that'll look like here in the next, yeah. you know, 12 months. With the Cardinals thing from whatever it was, five and a half years ago, I didn't really, I didn't address that, but I'm, I'm sort of vaulting myself back to the, those weeks. And man, I was devastated. I mean, there was a real say it ain't so mm. air over the whole household and timing had it that we had just left St. Louis when that story broke. We had taken the family to their first game at Bush and we met up with Patterson Hood and his family and had this wonderful getaway weekend and mm. feeling in the air was wonderful. The Cardinals pulled out a great win. We had dugout seats. And uh, the story broke as we were leaving St. Louis the next day. Oh, geez. Oh, God. About, the, about the hacking. And I, swear I couldn't sleep for three or four nights. I mean, I was just, I was so disappointed and so yeah. crushed. And uh, 
it lingered over the course of the rest of the season. It just would not go away. And it still gnaws at me. Um, and a lot of people have forgotten about it. I mean, even there are Astros fans around here that could rightfully just rib me whenever we hang, but they don't. Uh, gratefully, they don't. But uh, but uh, it still it still kind of eats at me that that even went down and that uh, that raised a lot of eyebrows toward the organization that was uh, so often you know called a, a very banner organization in major league baseball and the cardinal way and all the things that had snowballed up to that moment uh it was emotionally as a fan as a lifelong fan it was uh it just emptied me out for a while i see i, I was i was thinking about the card the the phrase the cardinal way was going through my head while you were talking so i'm glad you brought it up and and i'm like right now, I think if there was such a thing as the Astros way, it would be, and maybe that'll, maybe it'll change now with sort of a different front office, but it's like, we will 100% stab a nun to win a game. Like that's, that, that that's the Astros. Well, we will kick, we will take someone's wheelchair. Uh, if it means winning 103 games instead of 102, just a complete absence of morality whatsoever. Um, which maybe that's hard. <laughs> that's harsh. I don't know. Um, but so I've got this, I've got a really, like, I've never actually brought this up to, I don't even know that my wife knows this. Um, when that hacking thing went down. So I've had this Astros County blog since like 2008 um, and ended up to where I had a, a, a friendly relationship with someone in the front office who is no longer in the front office with the Astros. There was a guy that would write on Astros County every now and then, but he was like, he, he was an IT guy. And so like the day after it, it broke, there was some random website that, you know, the documents were, were sort of leaked to, uh, he went and found like other documents and I, I couldn't tell you what the documents were, but I ended up like sending a message on Twitter to this guy and being like, you, you need to know there's more of this stuff out there. Like you're, it's, it's still there. He's like, Oh crap, where, where is it? And so I ended up like, giving him the links to like some of the other documents that had been taken in this like hacking deal. And he was wow. like, man, thanks. That that's, that really helped. I appreciate that. I'm like, remember me next time I ask for seats. Uh, I and some like Indiana Jones shit. <laughs> yeah, no. And I had nothing to do. I was just like, Hey, my dude found this and y'all need to know about this. Cause you know, this is, this is still bad. So it was, I don't know, it was, it was weird. Um, something that, that, that you both have mentioned and I'm not going to name drop cause I'm still trying to, I'm going to exploit the hell out of, out of this, this little band of brothers and sisters that we've, that we've formed uh, mainly for purposes just like these. Uh, but there isn't, there is a baseball email group and, and it's, and it's, I think I've been around for 11 or 12 years. And, and basically like, if you knew this whole list, you'd be like, and you knew me, you'd be like, how in the hell are you a part of this group? Like, I did, like, it makes no sense. Cause it's, it's, it's guys like you and, and other, other extremely famous people. And then a random like history teacher uh, slash soccer coach. And, and it's just, it's still, it's one of those things that it'll never get old. Like getting a message from someone in that group and be like, Oh, well, of course this is who emailed, you know, emailed everybody today and this is what we're talking about like is how I guess 
and I'm trying to do this without, and I guess we could name drop if we want, but like how, how has being a part of this little email group, you know, positively affect, affected y'all? Cause it's, it's been huge for me. Like it's been a, it's just, it's just a boost every time, yeah. you know, one of those emails comes in. I find it totally delightful. And I would say James, I mean, you know, you've got, well, you've got your baseball bona fides and you know your music and you are probably the one who keeps us in stitches more than anyone else. <laughs> that's so all I've got. got like, that's all I can the, do. You're, you're like the court jester or something. <laughs> but um, but I, it's a, I, I don't know. I, I haven't been in it as long. I've been in it maybe five or six years, but I, I mean, I got to know you two guys real well through it, which has been awesome. And other people in the group that I've gotten to know, you know, and it is, it's some baseball people, it's some traveling musician people. And, it, and so when those folks come through Boston, um, I, I get to see them. And uh, yeah, obviously this year was very weird for all the aforementioned reasons. And so there wasn't a whole lot of like, hooray, baseball yeah. you know, compared to years past. Um, but it's, I don't know, everybody, everybody in there is a gem. So it's, so it's, it feels like it's fun to be a part of it. Yeah, it, it is a true leaning post of counsel and goodness in my life. And it has been for mm. goodness, I guess, 12 years now. And I still have moments where uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taken aback a little bit. Like, man, I get to, I'm allowed to chime in with these folks. This is a real, <laughs> this is a real gift. And furthermore, I think that, uh, it's definitely created a whole new circuit board of social life on the road and, and mm. reason to see friends. And anytime I'm in Boston, Josh is the first one I'm reaching out to. And, and uh, we always get time together. Same thing in Athens with Mills, uh, same thing in Philly with Pat. Like it's just, there are some automatic go-tos now uh, that might've, might've come around otherwise, but thanks to this list, and thanks to our regular communication, I think that the connections have definitely strengthened and become quite enriched. Yeah, no, I've had some definitely very positive, like in-person, uh, you know, experiences. There was, um, I had to go to Philadelphia for, for a conference and, and this is deserve, this is probably more deserving. I don't, I don't know that how much of this story I, I should actually tell just in case you know, anyone at the school hears this. Uh, so we'll, I've I'll, heard this. I've heard some of this story before. But one, there was one night in, we were in Philadelphia and we met up with Pat and, and it's a night that I vaguely remember, but it, it was, it was just like one of those, like the next morning I went with my cousin and we were on our Bank of America app, uh, each of our apps and be like, did you spend $20 at the, at the farmer's cabinet? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay. So we know we were there. Uh, like just shows like this very <laughs> memento like hangover style kind of re-piecing of what ha actually happened the night before. Uh, and then Pat came to, so the cool thing about, you know, y'all is that y'all travel and I'm, I'm pretty local just due to the nature of, you know, how things are. But Pat came to uh, Dallas and, and he was, he was playing, he was on the, he was the drummer for the clap your hands, say yeah tour. And so I, you know, I bounced right after school was over. I went up to Dallas. I heard sound check after sound check. There were like two or three hours where, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot going on. So we drove over to Arlington 
Uh, and Eric Nadell left us tickets and we saw half of a Rangers game and then drove back to, you know, deep Ellum and, and I got to see the clap your hand, I clap your hand, say, yeah. And then, and then drive home after that completely exhausted uh, and then get up at five o'clock the next morning and go up, you know, pretend like that didn't just happen the night before. So it, it's, it's so, it's just so cool. And there was one time I, uh, there was a brief moment that I thought I sunk someone's chances of getting in to the group. Cause I'm not going to tell anybody, no, they can't, you know, no, I don't want them in this group. Cause I, I mean, you know, it's not anyone's place to say, but I tell, I was, no. I tell them no way. It's been closed <laughs> five years. <laughs> I'm not in charge. You have to address the commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, Eric Nadell asked if, you know, what, how do we feel about Rhett Miller uh, getting in? I'm like, that's too way too freaking many Rangers fans. No, absolutely not. <laughs> And, and I think it, it might've been Joe is like, if you're serious, then, then okay, I guess we can pass my like, God. No, I'm not I'm, I'm hardly ever serious. Like it's not, so I, I, that was a moment of panic where I thought like I had denied Rhett Miller's, you know, rightful place in the, in the group. So, um, all right. So will you, you double, you double majored in English. This is where I'm glad I did. I did some cursory research into, into both of you. You double, um, double majored in English and elementary education. Were, did you want to be a teacher? Uh, yes, I did. Um, and that was kind of my original aim when I went to college. But the problem was the college was in Denton, Texas, which is an extremely fertile ground to start bands on. And so for 31 years, I just keep starting bands. <laughs> 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 but no, I did study, uh, I studied elementary ed and graduated with English lit. And yeah, that was the original aim. I was planning on moving on to do the master's thing, but I just became wildly distracted by the joy of making records and touring. And here we are many years later. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, okay. So, so Josh, you, you got a, a starring role um in daily pandemic life in march when you started doing like the seventh inning stretch uh and it was it was it was on you started on facebook um and basically if you if you donated to your local food bank and i think i think it just was like no, i'm just going to do this but you know a donation to your local food bank is suggested if you if you want to continue enjoying this um where you would basically play in your house and and do your normal like seventh inning stretch thing how did how did that because and, and then it took off like I saw you on Sports Center one of the rare nights that I watched Sports yeah. Center like you were on Sports Center one night and you had like Peter Gammons and and Mike Mills and Dale Murphy like yeah come on, it like. was um yeah and so and I'm still doing it periodically I was doing it every day when baseball was on hold and then when baseball came back I switched to a weekly okay um, and uh but it was just something a friend of mine I've known forever on what should have been the opening day, he's like, you should do a little live stream and just play a couple tunes in your living room because everybody's missing baseball on opening day. This was like two weeks into the original lockdown. I didn't know how to do a live stream, but you know, he was like, just Google it, watch a video, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I did it and I expected to play a couple tunes and see a couple friends and take a request and a ton of people showed up and a ton of requests came in and I played as many of them as I could. And uh, my wife, Mary, was sort of helping me with the technology of it. And afterwards, after we finished, we were both like, that was really fun. We should do it again tomorrow. And then 
next thing we knew we had somehow like committed to doing it every afternoon, you know, until I forget what we said, like until baseball comes back or until people stop showing up. Um, and, uh, but we enjoyed, you know, having this thing to do together every afternoon, having something to look forward to doing together every day. And the combination of like the absence of sports at that time with the absence of just kind of like positive news in general um, meant that what we were doing in our living room suddenly became an item of interest to a lot of media outlets. And so we were getting calls from all over the world of like, you know, <laughs> major outlets that wanted to do a story on us or wanted to interview us or whatever. And it was uh, very, very surreal, you know, but I got my, I got my 15 minutes and all, all it <laughs> took was a pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, and then eventually the media part kind of died down, but now there's this sort of like community of regulars that comes and hangs out and we have a good rapport and it's, I don't know, it's fun. I enjoy doing it. I, and I've never been like a, like an MC or host or front man type of, you know, I've always been much more of a like behind the scenes or background kind of performer. So, you know, it forced me like, I don't know, out of a certain shell a little bit, but um, it's been really enjoyable. And then at a certain point, a few months in, I was like, what if I, uh, what if I started having guests on? And then it became that thing where I was like, I'm gonna sort of like home the Rolodex and pick, you know, try to pick some like some known names, mostly just to sort of like spur donations. Cause then I could say to people like, Hey, I just interviewed like, you know, three members of the rock and roll hall of fame last month. That's worth, <laughs> that's worth a food bank donation. Right. You know, and it would, and like every time, every time somebody well-known came on the show, like the donations would, would spike. So, um, and I actually managed to, uh, through a mutual friend, I managed to get Branford Marsalis on the show this week, which was like, well, sure, bonkers, you know. Um, but we had a great time talking about the the soundtrack that he just did for this awesome new film, and um, so the 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 interview chit chat guest thing or whatever is um, is another part of it that grew out of it. But the whole thing is very unplanned and unscripted, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it being that. <laughs> Do you have an idea of, of how much, like how much was donated? Like how, how, how much did, did your little, you know, the, this, oh, it would be cool to do this. Like, do you have an idea of the numbers of like the impact of, of doing that? Um, no, I mean, we get, sometimes we get letters either from the food banks saying like this donation was made in your name or individuals will contact us and say, we made this donation in your name. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certain it's like, you know, in the, at least in the six figure range for the nine months that we've been doing it, which is really great. Like really, really cool and really awesome. Um, because I know like at the height of the media frenzy, we were getting like 15 to 20,000 viewers a day. Um, now we do it once a week and we get usually like one to 2000, just still pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, so oh, good. But it's, I, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's like all the musicians I've, I've been talking to, whether it's on the broadcast or just, you know, casually, informally, uh, you know, off, off hours. Um, and it was, I was reminded again when Will was talking earlier about like how he just put his nose to the grindstone and did all the painting, like all the musicians I'm talking to are 
they're and I'm sure plenty of other people are doing this too but uh but I'm seeing it especially with musicians that they're you know they're taking this crappy hand that we've all been dealt and they are figuring out some kind of way to make the best of it whether it's they're finding ways to be creative to hone their craft to practice to write to to perform in whatever ways they can to do you know other you know to do art in other mediums beyond beyond playing and singing um that has been like incredibly inspiring to me so there's just been no shortage of inspiration that i'm seeing from you know friends and colleagues and and, and artists that i'm a fan of um to make to make me feel like i can do something too you know well there is a I'm so glad I came across this article. Um, I guess I, it was a, couple, a few days ago, but it had the phrase, and, and I have so many questions. I'm just, I'm just gonna say the phrase, and I'm just gonna wait for an explanation. Uh, and and I, I, I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready for this. Uh, the phrase was um, with his former babysitter and family friend Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Yeah, it's all true. Um, okay, okay, that's all right. Yeah, so just all, all the questions. True. Every question is implied at this point. I just, I'm just going to let you talk about that. We're from we're from the same little town in southeast Missouri, little town called Kennett, which is in the the boot heel part that sticks down into Arkansas. Okay. We always we always kind of joke that it was the part of Missouri that even the Arkansas didn't even want. <laughs> um, so. Uh, but uh, it's just, you know, it's a little town of nine, 10,000 people. And we went to the same Presbyterian church and uh, her mother, Bernice, taught me piano for five years or so mm. right before I moved to Texas. And so Cheryl sang on the, in the church choir. My mother taught Cheryl in Sunday school and we lived, we all lived about four or five blocks from each other. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's all true. Yeah. Her sister, Karen, was kind of my main babysitter for a, a stretch of time. But there were times when Karen couldn't do the gig and Cheryl would fill in. But at any rate, we all the, the families were friends. And uh, I still see Bernice from time to time. And I ran into Cheryl maybe 10 years ago at the Bridge School Benefit. And it was funny because it was the first time I had seen her since she had become famous. It was the first time we'd really hung out since like 1983 or something. <laughs> so to, to meet her in that context and still hang out and have her tell everybody in Neil Young's kitchen, how much I used to act up in church was a real, <laughs> a real moment in my life. And I do remember thinking that, you know, if it were all done, if I were just done with music at this moment with Cheryl telling people, what a cut up I was in church and Neil Young's kitchen. Like I'd be cool with that. We could just put a button on it all and I'd go away. Yeah. But um, <laughs> at any rate, she, she uh, still, she's still really quite active within the community in Kennett. She donated a lot of money to open up a, a, a public swim center there. And um, she's a sweet soul, kind person and comes from an amazing family. That's really cool. And so I, I guess I, I was, I had been wondering ever since reading that, like when, if you had an album come out, would she drop you a line or, or was it just sort of, you know, y'all, you moved and then a number of a number of years passed or like, had, had y'all stayed in, 
you said this is the first time you hung out, but had y'all been in contact at all over the course of your musical career? Not really. My mom was in better contact than I was. Like anytime that she would come to Austin, uh, mom would go see her perform and they would meet up and talk. But um, the way that the, the way that we started emailing on the ramp up to the bridge school thing was because of our moms. Our moms basically put us back in touch with each other. And so we did email in the week leading up to bridge school and she was like, well, come find me when you get there, let's catch up. And, and, uh, but really over all those years, no, I mean, I moved to Texas at a pretty young age and, uh, you know, this was in, this was decades ago when people still wrote letters and things like that. And she was off at college and there was no real reason to you know, see you around, maybe see you back in Kennett sort of thing. But we weren't like close friends or anything, but, if there was a reason or if we ran into each other, we always had an enjoyable visit. But um, at any rate, our moms kind of played friend Cupid uh, <laughs> on the way up to that bridge school thing, which was cool. That's really, that's really cool. One of the things that, that both of y'all seem to do is, is you collaborate, you play well with others. You, you, you collaborate, you know, there's a lot of, I think one time I asked you, Josh, um, at one of these brunches, you know, how many, how many shows are you going to, to play? And you're like, I don't know this. It feels like a slow year, like maybe 40 or 50. And I'm like, you know, in a, in a week, like, I don't even like, I'm asleep by 10 o'clock every, I can't even imagine how that even works. Like, so um, I guess for, for each of you, what, what has been your, the, the collaboration, what's your best collaboration story? uh what's what's your favorite one what was one that that was just magic i guess if, if you each want to sort of relate some of your favorite collaborating uh experiences mine mine was between a a, a house and a fence in alston massachusetts rehearsing a couple of songs with josh before a living room show just a few years ago <laughs> that was pretty sweet we we work on the fly and you know i can say that josh seems to do all 40 or 50 shows up with a smile and is a ridiculously quick study he's just like yeah sure i got it so uh it's no surprise to me now that he does come down to south by and log so many shows but i don't know speaking personally i can just say that each collaboration kind of has its own it's it's a bit of its own snowflake and that um it, it's given me an opportunity to kind of learn how some of my good friends and at the same time, favorite musicians and songwriters prepare for performances and for writing and how they, uh, how they kind of go about creating. And it's given me a good vantage point and it's taught me a lot. Um, the monsters of folk thing was very much that way. The Jason Molina thing was very much that way. The band overseas is that way. Uh, it just gives a glimpse uh, it gives the fan side of me a selfish but yet extremely rewarding glimpse into how some of these folks uh, create. Um, same for me. It's always like extremely educational for, for as surreal as some of them can be when you find yourself on stage with people who like you had their post, you had a poster of them on your wall when you were growing up and now you're on stage with them. Um, you know, that is a, it's a weird thrill it's a weird sort of pinch me moment but ultimately it is um like will was saying it's just um i don't know it was it, basically it was my grad school 
you know, was like the first time I got in a van with uh, Peter Buck um, because he knew everything and I knew pretty much nothing in terms of like how to be part of a band. Um, and he was a very, you know, willing and terrific teacher. Um, and through him, I met a ton of other people um, and got to collaborate with a bunch of other people. And um, and yeah, the, the couple of times I've played with Will, it's been a delight when he's been in town. And uh, there was one time we very nearly, we tried to thread the needle on like a playoff game, I think. Um, <laughs> That's right. Where it was like, if you, but you had to, so something came up, like you, you, you thought you were gonna have a night off and then you picked something up and yeah. it didn't quite work out. Um, but uh, no, but then there was one, I think the one at the apartment in Alston, we like rushed off to see uh, um, Teenage Fan Club. Yeah, we right? rushed off to see Teenage Fan Club right afterwards, right? Because you were playing this early living room show. Um, it, was it was a banner night. Yeah, that was terrific. But, um, and the South by thing for me is, I don't know, it's super fun because I, at some point along the way, I figured out that I could just like, bring my little travel size accordion down there and it fits under the seat on the airplane and I could just walk around town and just kind of like pick up gigs here and there with friends or friends of friends. Um, and the more years I went back and kept doing it, the more the kind of circle expanded. And I, I have referred to it often as like my spring training because it's that time of year and I get my, I get my reps in basically, you know, so that I'm ready to, to, to go back to work at the ballpark. Um, I'll tell one particularly noteworthy story as far as like you know rock and roll royalty which was um it was my first time playing in Europe and uh we were it was sort of a collection of a bunch of musicians from England and from the U.S. who were going to be kind of collaborating and backing each other up on a bunch of each other's pieces and so we had a couple days to kind of rehearse and put sets together and match up different players with other players um and John Paul Jones uh from Led Zeppelin was one of the people who was there um and I had met him a couple of times before um but you know we're uh, so at one point I was in a group that was rehearsing some stuff with him and um and during the rehearsal he said and I think everyone in the room would was you know sort of dying to ask him like could we play a zeppelin tune with you <laughs> even if it's just in rehearsal but nobody was everybody was too nervous to do it including like sort of the big names um and then at some point he said he just stopped and said do you guys know um you know that song when the levee breaks <laughs> we're all kind of like yeah I think, I think i've heard that one a couple times before he's like he's like let's work it up let's run it and if it goes good then we'll we'll play it at the show tomorrow night and so we ran through it a couple times and it's one of those that is, it's actually like, it's deceptively tricky. It sounds like you feel like, Oh, I've heard that song a million times. I, I sure I know how it goes, but it has these quirky little twists and turns. And, um, and uh, but we worked it up to where it, I didn't think it was quite good enough. I don't think anybody thought it was quite good enough, but then he was like, he was just kind of like, well, we'll do it tomorrow. I'm sure it'll be better. So then the pressure's <laughs> on, right? So then everybody like, the rest of the band was up all night at the hotel, like just listening on the headphones and practicing their own part by themselves. <laughs> um, and, and we did it with them at the show the next night and it went great. And it was like the whole time I just, just, you know, grinning from ear to ear and just kind of like, I can't, can't believe this is happening right now. <laughs> did you take notes or were you able to 
kind of navigate without, you know, without too many cues or anything like that. Uh, oh, for the tune? Yeah. I mean, I think we had kind of worked out some, you know, some glance signals and maybe a couple of hand signals in terms of like, you know, this is when the, because the harmonica solo at the top's really, 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 really long, but it has to stop yeah. at a certain point. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, and then it changes to the part where the drums drop out. Um, and we had to kind of all know when that was going to happen. And um, so I think it was, I don't think there were any like pens and paper involved, but there was definitely like some gesturing, you know? Yeah. How, how, oh, go ahead. I'm no, it's okay. I, I mean, I'm always in awe of your musicianship because I don't think that I've ever seen you take a note. You have this fluid capability of just listening through and going, "Cool, yeah, all right, see you on stage." And whatever, I'm not, I'm not ever handing you any uh, great scientific problems with my simple songs. But at the same time, your demeanor and your carriage, I think, is wildly comforting. When I sometimes find myself even anxious probably more anxious to go in and play the songs that I've been playing 20 years. You're like, all right, cool. See you there. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I, it, no, it's, I mean, it's extremely flattering for you to say that because I was a fan of yours for a long time before we ever got to know each other. But um, and just to hear that in general is really sweet. I think, um, you know, I don't like, I'm not a good singer. I'm not a good writer. I'm not a good front person, I'm not a good guitar player not a good drummer i'm not flashy you know but like the one but i have this one little thing that i know how to do which is like yeah. hear a song and kind of lock it in so i'm happy oh, to be able to be the person who can like bring that to the table and have all the you know stars be up front and i can play um in support i will also tell you will it's like once you've once you've fucked up you know a handful of times for forty thousand people you don't get scared to fuck up in front of a couple hundred. <laughs> I always joke that I've been learning how to do this thing in front of a lot of people for a lot of years. I mean, I'm, I've had countless public rehearsals and I've managed to somehow eke out some semblance of a living of doing public rehearsals. Uh, I was thinking to myself though, I was like, I've never seen Cam I've never seen Josh take a note. And I've never heard Joe Pernice sing a foul note. His, his pitch yeah. and his delivery is astonishing. And I was kind of going through our group. It's like, man. But uh, I think I get it. Yeah. I mean, good grief. I've been paid pretty decent money to go out and really mess some things up at times. And um, after a while, I can't tell if I'm learning from it or if I'm just becoming numb to it. And it just becomes part of the, part of the presentation. <laughs> <laughs> The, just the, the, the very fact that that y'all can can just remember like I've been I taught myself so my when I was 17 it was my junior year of, of high school uh at the time I thought I wanted to be a, a a journalist and so I ended up I got a job covering school board meetings in Galveston County mm -hmm. uh for for 25 dollars a story but of course those were those were all at night and all my friends during the summer like they worked during the day uh, and so there was a summer where I just, I, I, I was like, I got to figure out something to do to kill time before I have to be in, you know, Lamarck at 730 for this wretched school board meeting. Uh, and so I, I taught myself how to play, I taught myself how to play guitar. And I've been playing for 23 years. And the only song that I could play you, right, if you were like, 
if you handed me a guitar, you're like, play a song. I could only play one song where I did not have to have the chords or the lyrics in front of me. And it's so embarrassing to say that it is, it is Hit Me Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. <laughs> That's a catchy one. But it's like, like, a, like the, it was like the slow, it's like a slowed down ballad. Ver- Back when it, it was, like I, I'd learned how to do that before that was like a, a hipster, like kitschy thing to do was to take like an insane yeah, bubblegum right. pop song and turn yeah. it into, you know, something yeah. that's lilting. And I just, I it just, the very act of, of knowing, knowing enough songs to fill a concert without having to have like a, you know, a music stand in front of you and someone to flip the pages or, you know, a, a different set of glasses to where you can see all the lyrics and chords on one page. Like, it's just utterly phenomenal to me. Like it's, it's, it's absolute magic. I would say that we have something to look forward to the next brunch, James. I think <laughs> all right. Bring me campfire guitar. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll do it. I'm, there's zero shame. I, I don't even, it's not even, a, it, I, like, I think someone is like, that's a guilty pleasure. I'm like, it, I don't feel guilty about it. It's just a pleasure. Like, I don't, I don't even, I, there's no embarrassment whatsoever. Yeah. So you had mentioned, um, okay, so my, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to put this. My, my brother-in-law challenged me, we, we sort of mutually challenged each other to name our, by December 31st, so I've got a couple days left, uh, to rank our 20 favorite albums in order. So one through one through 20, I'm not going to ask you to do that, but I do, I do want to point out that, cause that's just a huge thing. I've been thinking about this for a week already and I've got lists and spreadsheets and it's, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous how seriously I'm taking this list. Um, but will the candidate waltz, uh, Centromatic album that, that made the list. Wow. What? And, and I think I texted you one night and I, if I remember correctly, it was real late at night. I was like, Hey, I just wanted to like pop in and say that ISO residue is one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, but, but it kind of listening through your other stuff, it seems like the candidate waltz album was a little bit different from like, it, it's certainly different from your like later stuff. What do you remember about that process with the, with the candidate waltz and Josh, have you heard that album? Yes, I am a fan of that album. It's a great album. So what? Yeah, I guess in, you can give me the short version. I know I, I told you all it'd be an hour, and we're already a little bit over. That's all right. Um, I I can quickly tell you that it's it's the only record that I've written uh, almost entirely on a bass guitar. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I just needed a different uh, avenue into the songs, other than standard sit around with the acoustic, strum things out, and figure out melodies through that conduit i took a i borrowed my wife's uh bass guitar for a summer and and just kind of hammered out the songs predominantly on that with a small practice amp and i think i can't say for sure but i do think that that informs some of the percussive elements of the record and some of the uh i don't know maybe some of the overall mood of the record um because when you do that you're you're exploring through a rhythm, a, a more a more rhythmically centered instrument, which changed some of my vocal habits a little bit, and it changed some uh, some of the initial gut instinct vocal and lyrical ideas that I had. So uh, that might be why that record sounds a little bit different from some of the other central records. I I freaking love it. I mean, it, it's so good, just start to finish. It's such a it's such a good album. Um, but I, I remember thinking one of the, one of the, 
one of the things that stood out to me about the album was the was the physical album itself uh in that you know the the cover art is very much like like the paint like your paintings uh and i am the very proud owner of a of a jose cruz print uh that you left for me behind a flower pot at the elite right. uh with with a copy of your new of, of your new album which was also fantastic but i remember my relationships i will leave my belong i'll leave things at local restaurants <laughs> and i remember like i was because you sent me the email and it was like hey i left this and it was a couple of hours and the elite was about to open and i remember it was a saturday morning and it was it was still pretty early it was i guess it was 7 30 maybe eight o'clock but i'm rushing around looking for my keys and wallet my wife's like what's wrong with you i was like i've got to go pick up a package at the elite and and it was <laughs> And, and I, I think ultimately I had to be like, I'll explain when I get home or I'll call you on the way, but I've got to get over there. Like it's, it's not a bomb. It's fine. Like it's, it's, it's going to be really cool. And so um, when did, did the, did the painting always accompany the music or was there a, a time where you're like, I need a different creative outlet or, you know, I need to get creative juices flowing. So I'm going to go to this medium for a while and see like, what's the relationship between music and, and your painting. I'm not sure. I think I think that candidate waltz record is probably the closest that the two ever got because the video concept was to film me like stop action film making a a, a twelve foot by twelve foot piece and that I kind of made it up as I went along. I had no. I was very nervous going into that uh, because no pressure. It's going to be the cover of the record as well, <laughs> and. Uh, so that's the closest I really ever pushed the two together. But the painting thing has been more of a, a historical exploration over the last 12 or 13 years. And really, uh, that came as a result of just having a box of acrylic paints around and some old MDF board. And I had moved into kind of this dank apartment after a breakup and frankly wanted to just make some paintings to decorate the walls. I didn't have many wall hangings, so I started painting tributes to ballplayers that I just admired uh, and started filling the walls that way. And so it became a little bit of a separate pursuit from the music thing in that the music to me is a little bit more of a mystery. And it's, you know, if you know my lyrics at all, they're pretty angular and a little bit more um, abstract at times. But the painting thing was more of a historical pursuit. And it allowed me to learn a little more about this game that I've loved so much over all my life. And uh, each, I found that each painting taught me a little something new. So I was gaining something out of just making these things. So that's really why I started doing it. And that's why, you know, it helps me make a living at this point, which I'm super grateful for, but nothing's changed in that each one teaches me a little something new about the subject that I'm focusing on. Josh, how do you keep how do you keep the creative juices flowing? Um, it's a good question. I mean, during quote unquote normal times, I just sort of try to have a lot of um, you know a lot of balls in the air. So like I'm, I'll hopefully be lining up some recording work and then also lining up some performing work as a supporting player in a band, um, and. Uh, and just try to have a lot of that going on and, you know, some things that are uh, maybe kind of recurring so that there's some infrastructure there. But then I also enjoy the, the one-off things just for the sort of the unpredictable 
predictability of them and, and the and the sort of what you end up learning from the from the potential <laughs> for chaos. Um, so that's the main thing, you know, at a time like this, I've still been able to do a little bit of recording, um, but not as much. It just seems like people aren't, uh, or people I've worked with before aren't, aren't, aren't doing as much of that right now or, or aren't, you know, particular need or want of my services as much. Um, you know, doing these live streams has been, has been really fun and has been a, uh, yeah, it's been a different kind of thing creatively. Uh, like I mentioned before, just because I am like, I'm, I'm like running the show, you know, and we have a very inter, a very active, like live chat that's happening. And so I'm having conversations on the screen with people who are typing in and, um, and I, you know, just trying to keep that um, engaging and trying to make it interesting. And I have, I'm just realizing as, as Will is talking about his process with the base, with the ballplayer paintings that I may have inadvertently like taken a page from his book because I do typically spend a few minutes each episode discussing a particular favorite ball player from growing up. And usually I'll have their card on display, like sitting on top of the organ. Um, and, uh, you know, much like how Will does with these paintings where he looks, where he finds biographical information and statistical information and cool, interesting stories about the players. And like, I just did one yesterday for, you know, for Phil Necro because he had just passed away. And I was a big Braves fan as a kid growing up when he was the, the, the ace of the staff because I was living down there at the time and um, so just to kind of be flooded with all these memories and then to read a short bio online and and put together you know and it was basically like like here's my book report on Phil Necro for <laughs> everybody who's watching and if you enjoy it great and if you don't I don't care because I enjoy it you know <laughs> do you do you work at a, at a bookstore or a library I work part time. I work part time at a library, um, and that is uh, so. That's you know, kind of the steady income, especially in times like these. Um, and I have I've been working from home since mid March, and probably will be working from home for another six months or so. Is the best guess at this point. I've been able to do most of my work from home, fortunately. Um, and uh, but yeah, I've always worked in libraries, like all through high school and college, summer jobs, work study. And then it's kind of always been my regular steady thing throughout um, adulthood. And I really enjoy it. And, um, and it's sort of a, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different world in terms of like, there, uh, like most of the other librarians I've worked with are not big baseball fans or, or not baseball fans at all in many cases. Um, so a lot of times they're sort of curious about what, like, what is it that you do exactly? I don't get it. Um, <laughs> it, it was funny to see, you know, like I started working for the Sox in 03 and then in 04, they kind of, you know, they broke the curse and it was a very big deal. And so everybody got on the bandwagon. So then it was, you know, my, my, my colleagues who like didn't know, you know, three months earlier, they didn't know what a strikeout was. And now they're talking to me in October. They're like, why didn't he pinch hit in the seventh with the runner in scoring position? <laughs> they're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm just the, I'm just the tune man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I had, uh, actually you'll appreciate this one because it, it, it gets back to the, uh, the, uh, the sign stealing uh, scandal that we were talking about earlier. One of my colleagues, um, when all that stuff was kind of in the news or when the, maybe, I think, maybe it was when the report came out, the Manford report came out. And she doesn't, she doesn't follow baseball at all. And 
she asked me, she came over and she sort of whispered to me in a very hushed tone. She was like, you don't have to tell me anything that you're not comfortable telling me, but just if you're willing to tell me, like, what was your role? What was your level of involvement in the science? Team? <laughs> like, were you playing certain notes to cue the players? Like which pitch was coming? <laughs> and it's just, That's genius. It was wild. Yeah, it was totally genius because obviously like I, you know, I have pretty much, I have zero interaction with, you know, uniform personnel unless they're like, you know, the celebrity guest at a, at a Red Sox sponsored benefit. And I'm like the musical entertainment at said benefit and maybe we <laughs> hello in the green room before, beforehand. Um, but it occurred to me, I was like, that's not an impossible thing to try to pull off. If someone were to think, were to try to scheme in that manner, it could potentially be done that way. <laughs> I'm going to let the Astros know, like, that's a really good idea. Like that. Yeah. They, if, and yeah, maybe they could have gotten back to the world series. If, if uh... never initiated a curveball with a G sharp minor, it's just, <laughs> never... <laughs> yeah. that's, that's hilarious. I do like to picture all the players at, you know, uh, pitch refinement sets sessions just trying to perfect their their pitch for notes and things like that and yeah having right. classes yeah. in the dugout yeah yeah we, it could be part of you know it's like you do your you do your morning you do your weightlifting yeah then you do your yoga then you do your like music theory session <laughs> <laughs> well gentlemen this was this was an absolute delight um and I've I've kept you all way longer than I than I said I would, which which I mean honestly you pr you probably could have seen that coming. Uh, but but thanks so much for for taking some time out of your day uh, to oh, to sit down yeah. and have a chat. And let's let's do it for hopefully do it for real in in March uh, yeah. with with some tacos. I would love it. Yeah. This thanks. This has been a blast. Thank you guys. Hey, uh, love you, dudes, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Love, love you. you too.